What I'd like to speak about this evening is what it means to be part of it all. <coughs> For myself, in my sort of family situation, we didn't have any overt or particular religious sort of observance or practice. And although we didn't perhaps call it as such, I, in looking back, realized and with great appreciation have come to understand that there was really a quite a powerful sense of, of a spirituality grounded in being sensitive and having a concern for all living things, for all of life, sometimes expressed in terms of ecological and political awarenesses. But that there was really a sense that I received, and I'm, as I say, very grateful for it, of, of being part of this world. And even so directly as in the, um, the present that I remember I received on my 16th birthday, which was a, a book about the New Zealand um, forest world, as it was titled. And uh, in the inscription that was there from my um, family saying something and I now that you are 16 and recounting some of the places in the, that I had spent time in the natural environment and saying, now that you are 16, remember that you are part of it all. And it's an important reflection and a powerful one to just bring ourselves face to face with that sense of being part of it all. And though, again, the language in the the word spirituality wasn't really in my vocabulary. But looking back, I can see quite clearly that my first spiritual practice was actually hugging trees. And that there was just something about trees that one could just connect with, that I certainly found a sense of oneness with these amazing beings that seemed to be rooted in the earth. And that <coughs> it was perhaps then no coincidence that the first night I ever spent in voluntary solitude was a situation where I drove out into the woods and camped under the canopy of a group of giant trees, cowries, which we have in New Zealand. I think one of the oldest and largest trees that grows in the world. And I remember that first night of solitude, that first night where I was ever really intentionally and consciously alone, just to see what that would mean for me. Um, and I remember that it wasn't at all easy. And yet I also remember that it was very powerful and that there was really a sense of having, having allies in this group of five or six majestic old trees which I was sleeping amongst and underneath. And <coughs> when we reflect on the natural world, on the the, the, the nature and the, the vastness of it all, we sense at times and we feel its great power and its great potency to touch us. That in its vastness, in its incredible dimension and depth and richness and variety, when we, we sometimes feel a sense of awe when we behold it, we, we realize perhaps that we can't reduce it to something that's just an idea in our mind, that it's actually larger, that it's bigger than all of that. And if we've ever walked outside on a starry night and just allowed ourselves to take in the enormity, the vastness 
of what we stand underneath. And just imagining, just understanding that the dimensions and the distances and the quantities of what we're looking at is beyond anything we can really conceive. And yet, we at the same time have seen that incredible and awesome view of the sky. We, we realize in a way that we're being held by the earth. And if you doubt that, you might consider the perspective of someone from New Zealand. Because as far as that person is concerned right now, we're all hanging on the bottom of the earth. And it's true, we are. And that we were not, but for the, in a way that the mystery and the benevolence of earth's gravity fly off into that voidness, into that vast empty space. And sometimes when we face that, that awesome and majestic sense of unconceivable dimension of vastness, we, we feel a sense of our own personal insignificance. And not an unhealthy or demeaning way, but a way in which we feel a humility and a sense of just being a little speck of dust in a vast universe. And it can shake us sometimes in our sort of arrogant self-importance and our feeling that somehow our existence makes the world go round, forgetting that, in fact, when our light goes out, the earth will keep spinning as it always has done. And yet, although there's that sense perhaps of insignificance, that sense of humbling, when we understand that we're actually a part of all of this, there's a way in which we're also exhilarated. We're uplifted and perhaps even exalted to realize we are part of this which is so vast, which is so amazing. And it's kind of interesting to reflect on being part of something this big this vast, because when we look at the universe, when we look even at something the whole size of a whole planet, we don't often look at it and think about how it should be different. We don't think, well, you know, this planet would really be better if we had a few more continents over here and an extra ocean over there. Or if those mountains weren't quite so high and these ones looked a bit pointier. <laughs> that kind of thought doesn't occur to us because we, we only really have that way of relating to things when we can make them into something a bit smaller than ourselves, that our mind feels confident to play its games of preference with. But who would suggest that the universe was somehow wrongly made? Or that it, it was sort of subject to the kinds of faults and flaws we so easily find in ourselves, each other, and the, the perhaps smaller scale of things around us? There's a way in which when we connect with that sense of vastness, we also connect with a sense of okayness, being part of something that is just too big to judge or to compare. We don't sort of think, well, you know, this planet would be a bit better than another planet or worse than another planet. We just, this is what it is. And that's quite natural. That's quite natural and quite, quite helpful, that sense of just suchness. It's just how it is, suchness. And we can feel sometimes the touch of this power in our meditation, in the silence, in the stillness, in the very being amongst the trees and walking on the grass under the sky, or even sometimes just in the attending to a, to a, a green living being, a plant that sits there 
and the patch just shimmers gently in the currents of air in the room. We can feel it just touches our heart and our mind to a depth and in a way that perhaps we don't often experience with other things. And that there's a, there's a way in which we can open when we connect to, to simple natural experiences. And often it is natural things which enable us to do so. It's a leaf lying, fallen on the grass, or a small insect crawling along. And we, we, we just have a sense of wonder, of amazement, and in that a sense of connection, a sense of just meeting something and opening, opening in that meeting to it, where there's no real sense of self and other, but just this miracle that is being revealed, that is being revealed to us and within us. And we see that the power of the natural world is also that it's a great teacher to us in those moments of connection, and equally when we're more feeling distant and simply observing, we see that the natural world teaches us about change. Again and again we see that all things that grow, that are born, they also die and fade away. We see that the the weather that passes over the land and the seasons that passes more slowly, but they're constantly changing from one thing to the next, and it seems like almost the weather this week has just been doing its utmost to let us know that yes, things do change. That it can be hot, cold, wet, dry, white, black, all in the space of a few days, with no respect for our idea of how it should be, or our expectations and anticipations of what today's weather will mean about tomorrow. And we see that we're just, they're all just blown out the door by the wind that changes the weather. And, and that the sense of natural world, of nature, as a teacher, that it lives and reveals, lives by and reveals the same principles, the same fundamental truths and realities that our own life is governed by, because we are part of that nature. And yet sometimes it's easier to see it when looking outside than looking inside. And with this experience, with this exploration of a, a relationship to the natural world, to natural things, I've noticed in my own practice that there's been a, quite a, a movement, an unfoldment, a development of greater connection and deeper connection with a wider and wider range of different things in the practice, a sense of an unfolding reconnecting, one could say. And to put this in context, when I lived in New Zealand and my my original sense of nature was of something totally wild and untouched, pristine, and in New Zealand we're rather privileged that there's actually quite a lot of natural wilderness left, where really you don't expect to see the hand of humankind having touched it at all. And you wouldn't really hardly at all when you're there in vast areas like that. And and when I when I came into to live in, in England some years ago, I found it very hard to have a sense of nature. There were gardens and parks and it all just looked like someone had done it. You know, I couldn't really relate to it. I couldn't open to it. It didn't touch me. And people went for walks on roads. I couldn't believe it. I, would, I never went for a walk on a road in my life. <laughs> Roads are the thing you used to get somewhere. 
but actually being in nature was something you did where there were no roads, no lights, no fences, no people. And yet, in my time in England, I think I've learned slowly to, to reconnect again with gardens and parks, with trees that are manicured and that someone shapes the way they or their mind thinks it should look, which initially would repel me, but I sometimes now start to sense that, yes, this is still, it's still possible to connect with all of this, and that, that actually one, yes, can walk on the roads and enjoy that, even that cars drive on the roads as well, and it's not too bad. And even urban areas, cities, where one might walk and just see a small patch of grass, green amidst the blackness and the, the grey film and filth of inner city slums, and just actually connect and just touch with that grass growing. And if one's ever seen a road that no one's attended for 10 or 15 years, and one sees how the grass reclaims it, one knows there's a potential, there's a potency in that blade of grass to reclaim and to perhaps re-beautify some of the, the scars that think thoughtless actions of human beings have caused on this earth. And one might even see, and it's quite quite touching to see a small flower bursting through the pavement, breaking apart the concrete and the sealed bitumen. And you sense that the power of nature, of life, to break through against all odds, whatever holds it, holds it down, and that one just can just love and empathize that creature, that being, that life, doing its thing. And, and that it's possible to really take deep delight in the natural world where we find it around us. <coughs> and, and in a similar way as with environments, to being able to connect and really feel a sense of connectedness and openness in different environments, it's of course being much easier where it's much more beautiful and wild. There's that progression that I think I've, ex well I know I've experienced and I think that we experience as we unfold, as we open. And there's also a progression in some ways of a movement in relationship to different sorts of living things, which I've also observed. And that originally, really, I had this incredible feeling of connection with trees. And as I said, just, just would love to just wrap my arms about them and forget that it was me and the tree. It was just, just hugging, happening, and just delightful. And yet, over the time, it's been interesting to see how that, not knowing, not really understanding to begin with, how there was a way of separation or distance from other things, from sort of garden plants or cultivated, you know, plants and pots living in houses where they're not supposed to be, or so my mind would say. And, and with animals and birds, that there was a sense of affection towards all of that, and appreciation, respect perhaps even, but nonetheless a degree of feeling separated from, disconnected from, somehow other than all of those things. And in the years of practice, there have been times that really quite stand out where I've just both really seen the dissolution of that disconnection and often one doesn't know it's there until one senses it dissolves. And I had this wonderful experience once in, in India where I was um, doing some walking meditation and I saw the stick moving across the concrete on which I was walking. And something just caught my eye. I was just mindful, very slow walking. And then I just realized that the wind was blowing in my face and the stick was overtaking me as I walked very slowly. And I just thought, just a moment. 
And I realized the stick was traveling in the opposite direction to the wind. It couldn't be blowing in that direction. And I, I just stopped. I, I mean, I, I really wasn't moving fast. So I really just stayed and watched. And I couldn't see anything but the stick moving. And then, then I just caught this tiny, tiny, tiny little ant. And the stick, 50 or 100 times its own body size, dragging it along. And something just touched me. Something just moved me very profoundly about this little tiny creature and what a burden it had. It would be equivalent to me, you know, pulling this building around, <laughs> literally. And there just something struck me. Wow, what a creature. And just, I just realized in that moment both that there up until that moment had been a sense of separation from such creatures. But in that moment there was no longer. But just a sense of, of something shared something quite profound that was shared. And similarly, I remember experiences at the old Gaia house where we would often have some quite friendly birds and creatures. And I remember once offering a little crumb to a robin that was sort of getting a little tame actually and would come quite close to one's hand to take the crumb of bread. And seeing how it this, this robin was drawn towards that crumb. You could see it was wanting it so much it was pulled. And yet at the same time as that desire for the crumb was there, it was also scared. It was really scared. It did not want to go near my hand. It wanted that crumb, but it did not want to go near my hand. And it was like it was on two rubber bands. One was pulling it one way, one was pulling it the other way. I could just sense as it leaned forward and back. And eventually I just couldn't actually stand the, the torture it was in and let, let go the um, crumb so it could come and have it. But I just, and again, that sense of empathy was seeing creatures pulled by that same longing that we can experience. And equally at the same time pulled away by that fear, that fear for one's own well-being. And a sense of how often seeking that which we want, that which perhaps will serve our well-being, we put ourselves in situations which are harmful to us, which are threatening for us. And I realized actually I didn't want that small creature to learn to come to the hands of human beings because actually one cannot trust that those hands will be kind to it. And I'd rather it didn't learn that. But just that, again, that, just that sense of the small creature being driven by those same elemental forces that I see in myself, that I observe in others around us, that real sense of connecting, something very primal and fundamental and shared, something shared that perhaps is more significant than the difference. And again, in, in India, the puppies I mentioned last night, delightful and joyful as they are, sometimes also not very healthy, and I spent a day with one dying in my lap. And it was an incredibly moving experience, just being with it. There was nothing one could do for it, but knowing it was dying and, and just... One of the teachers on the retreat came and asked, is it dying? And just quite naturally, my sense was, we're all dying. And we are. We only admit it when we're close to the end of the process. But we're all in this process of moving inexorably, unstoppably towards death. And to be with another creature, to realize that that mystery of life was about to go out like a light. And to be touched by that predicament that we all share, that we share with all life with all living things, of having found ourselves in this world only to be 
ejected from it at some future date. So again, it's that sense of empathy, of, of sharing something so profound, so powerful, and yet quite incomprehensible at the same time. And there's a way in which, in observing that process, I could see my heart, my sense of connection, opening to, to more forms of living creatures. That, that for this one insect, in a way, I felt my whole relationship opened to the whole world of insects, which had previously really just been, you know, little creatures with not much to do with me. And opening to that world of animals, mammals and birds, and all of them. And then, in a way, recognizing that the last part was opening to other people. I'm actually sensing and seeing other people that equally they were not that different than I. That we are not that different than each other. But that the powers that drive us, the forces that pull and push us, are the same. Although perhaps they do so in different ways. And that to see that all of us, myself and others, are doing the best we can within the limits of our clarity and our confusion. Within the best of our ability. And with the best of intentions, so often misdirected. And, and in that, really just a sense of connection, of opening to connection, that really is a theme, I think, in all spiritual practice, in all real and all deep and profound understanding. And in that opening to a sense of connection, and opening to a sense of being part of something larger than ourselves, something larger than our individual separate identity with which we're so often obsessed and at times lost in. And, and just that, that sense of being something larger, being part of something larger, it, it really grounds us and connects us in a, in a sense of, of the legitimacy, of the appropriateness of where we are in our life in the appropriateness, because that larger thing is, is just as it is. We find a sense of ourselves being just as we are when we connect with it. We allow ourselves to be much more easily when we, sense, when we sense that we're part of something larger. And we might even start to feel different about our very own body that we so, can be so identified with, we can be so possessive of and protective of. And we we might start to sense that it's not just for the use of me, personally. And we might actually be aware already that many beings live on this body, in this body, close to this body. That there's fungi, between my toes at least, and there's bacteria, some of which we depend on for our digestive process, some of which depend on us for theirs and that there's creatures that actually get their nourishment from the very cells of this body, from the very nutrients which we eat, thinking it's for me. And it's just kind of interesting to reflect, well, how do we feel about that? Because too often we have the sense, kill, get rid of them, fix them, don't want any part of that. It's unpleasant, it's inconvenient, it's irritating. And sometimes, of course, it may be actually threatening to our health, and we need to take care of that. But... What I find rather interesting is that there's a there's a quite natural willingness to just offer, to allow that some other creatures find their sustenance from this body too, 
and that one might have a sense of being willing to offer a meal to a to a hungry insect. Because really, for a bit of itching and discomfort and the loss of a few drops of blood, it's the gift of life. And if one knows there's no malaria in the area, and certainly there isn't in this country, what really harm is a mosquito going to do us? And the story is told of the Buddha in one of his lives before he was um, enlightened. How in his sense of practicing selflessness, he, he cast his very body to the, to the feet of a starving lioness so she would have food for her, for her cubs. She was sick and unable to find food. And he actually gave his body. And I mean, we might feel we're a long way from doing that, and certainly I wouldn't feel it particularly likely if I ran into a starving lioness that I'd decide to feed her part of my body, or all of it. But one just thinks what the spirit behind that might mean about how we live our life and how we perhaps use that which we call our own. And if there's anything we really feel it's our own, it's our body, let alone the other things that we might have. And a sense of being willingness to share what we have. Because we realize in sharing it with others, we're not really depriving ourselves. We're nourishing ourselves because we're part of those others. We're not removed from them. And yet, for that one can speak, as I do, about being touched by that deep connection, that the nourishment that can come from that and the sweetness, there are times also, of course, where we don't feel connected to others, where we don't feel connected or in touch with the natural world, with the universe, or with ourselves. And in those times of not feeling connected, of feeling distant, disconnected, cut off and separate, we sometimes doubt the validity of our being here. We start to question whether something has gone horribly wrong and that perhaps we are some terrible mistake for which the universe seeks to punish us. And that that's why we're experiencing so much pain and so much suffering in our life. And so easily when things are difficult, when things are not as we wish them to be, the thought arises, there's something wrong with me. How painful. The, 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 the depth of, of sadness and perhaps sickness to the pit of our stomach we feel when we believe that there's something wrong with me. And equally, of course, we come to that view and position about others. There's something wrong with them. There's something unhealthy, unwholesome, bad about another or about ourselves. And sometimes when we feel like that, it can be very powerful. It can be very helpful to actually just go and spend some time in the natural environment. To actually sense our place in it. To connect with it. And there's, some, there's a line from the, the poem Desiderata, which some of you may know, which is, Be gentle with yourself, for you are a child of the universe, no less than the birds and the stars. And you have a right to be here. And that sense of what it means to have a right to be here. That our very existence is a statement of the rightness of our presence on this world, in this life. And that being able to really trust that, we start to see how it's confirmed by life's very benevolence. By what life actually offers to us. The very food and air and water 
without which we would perish and die so quickly. The, the warmth of the sun, without which this whole planet would cease to support life in no time at all if the sun were to go out. We see that so much is offered to us and that in that sense of receiving it, in that sense of allowing our sense, ourselves to feel what we receive from nature and understanding the message of benevolence that's expressed by that, the message of actually sort of we don't perhaps feel comfortable with personalising it, saying it's like an act of kindness, because it's not quite like that. And yet, there's a way in which it touches us in the same way as a gift from another. Because we realise it is a gift. It's something that's offered. It's offered to us. That we receive it. This very existence. This very life. This very moment. And sometimes, in the midst of that, when we when we do feel the pain of life, when we do feel the sharp edges of experience and the piercing and sometimes pummeling sort of difficulties and sufferings that we might face and we feel raw and tender, sometimes we can actually find that we can't, can't quite make sense of it. Can't quite understand why this should be, that this pain is in our life. And, and there's a way in which in those times it can be quite helpful just turning to nature, using nature as a, as a way of, of just being in that place. And there's a lovely couple of lines from a poem by W.B. Yeats, which sort of expresses the sense. And I will just in a way, it's the chorus refrain. It's called The Stolen Child, the poem. But the refrain goes, Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy, hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. And the final refrain of the poem is, And so he's come, the human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy, hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than he can understand. And we think sometimes just the pain of this world. It's just too much to comprehend. Sometimes it's just too much to hold. And, and yet if we just turn perhaps to nature, just allow ourselves to be part of it all, there's a way in which we can find support for that, that place we find ourselves in. And and that the pain that's almost too great to hold by ourselves when it feels personal, or when it even feels personal about our world, so we allow life to hold it. So we don't need to hold it by ourselves, but we allow life to hold it. And in that we're not running away from it, because we're part of that life, which is holding it. And we see that the natural world is actually also at times an antidote to fear, the fear and the anxiety that can drive us and, and push us and pull us so much of our lives. Because the natural world rather effortlessly always is existing in the present moment. And there's a poem by Wendell Berry that expresses this again, which I'd like to read. 
called the peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And that, that sense that, see, it's really, I find it just really beautiful, that sense of wild, the peace of wild things who do not tax themselves with forethought of grief. And how much suffering we bring into our lives through our imagined and anticipated fears of that which may happen but which may never. And as I think Mark Twain once said, most of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. And so again, just continuing on this theme of the, the potency of the natural world as a, as a healer perhaps for our, for our pain. Ajahn Buddhadasa, the um, much revered Thai forest monk who died a few years ago, he was once asked how he dealt, how he worked with people who came experiencing overwhelming emotional pain. And he said, so what he did was surround them with metta, with loving kindness, and send them out into nature and leave them there until they realized they were part of it. And that sense of being leaving ourselves in the natural environment until we realize we're part of it. And the profound healing that can come through that process that he speaks of. And yet, there's other ways in which we experience the natural world apart from that which appears to be outside of ourselves. But sometimes when we're practicing, when we're quiet inside, we actually sense that we are very much part of the natural world at an elemental level, at a cellular level. We can actually sense it, we can experience it. And, and we feel our bodies made of food, grown in the earth using water and fire, warmth from the sun and air for the process of growing food. And we see that all this comes into our body, nourishes it, and from which it grows rather mysteriously from that little pile of stuff that we put on our plate once or twice or three times a day. And that the, the body grows itself. We don't do it. We're not making it happen. We see that we put the food into our mouth, we chew it and swallow it, and then digestion just occurs. We can't swallow the food and tell our body not to digest it. It just does it, and it just grows. Sometimes it grows more than we want. Sometimes it grows not as much as we wish. But we see how it just happens, and that <coughs> if you've ever tried to stop a sneeze, and you see the body's got a mind of its own when it comes to sneezing, it knows 
that this is what it needs to do. And it will. And we can try and stop it, and sometimes we succeed even. But there's a way in which the, the sensations of our existence are like the pulse of organic life, and we feel that organic life. We feel it in that elemental way. We don't take such a sort of a, a distanced view of it, but we're really right there for each each flicker of experience that is revealed to us. And, and we see how our breath, that is part of the trees when they produce the oxygen that comes into our bodies, that enters the very cells that make this body up. Not just that it hangs around in a space in our chest, it enters the very cells of our body. And then after some time, it re-enters into the air, into other bodies, into trees and plants again. And we see how we're part of that process, how we couldn't exist but for that process. And we don't know how it works. We can't really understand it. We can't figure out how it is that our body does that, if we're really honest about it. And and sometimes we, we feel a real depth of connection. We're touched to the very core of our being by this by this process of being alive. And we, we feel the breath that flows in us is really not different than the wind that blows across the land and that the blood running in our veins is not so dissimilar to the water that runs in the streams and the rivers through the hills and the valleys, that the grass that grows when we run our hand through our hair, it's not so different. We need to cut it regularly, and it feels not that different when we actually just feel it, when we don't think about concept of grass, concept of hair. We just see it's what grows grows on something that's alive and it's grass and it's hair and it's not so different and that the very tears that flow down our face cleansing our heart like the rain that carries the dust and the smog out of the air and washes it away and and our body if we run our hand across our body can be like the landscape of the earth we feel the hills and the valleys the hollows and the plains and there's just a sense that this very being this very body is not other than all of that, is not different than this world. And in that, in that depth of connection, in that depth of relating to, to life, to our life, to all of life, without any sense of dividing it up, without any sense of any possibility of division, what we discover is that there's a natural compassion, a natural caring and connection towards all of life, towards ourselves and all other things that live. And we see that the wish to care for and the interest in the well-being of ourselves and of others is, is rather unstoppable. And that, and that in the same way as our hand rubs our foot when it's tired, our hand doesn't think it's doing something good. It's not sort of being the Bodhisattva of hands or the Mother Teresa of, of hands when it rubs our foot. It's simply naturally responding. When the foot is hurting, the hand rubs it. And we see that in that way, the hand actually isn't separate from the foot. That we think about hand as separate, but it has a separate, a different appearance, a different function. And yet, where is the line that is drawn? Where can we find it in our body? Between a hand and a foot? There is no line. There is no place where one stops and the other begins. That's just the way we think about it. 
And it's much the same way that when we think about life, in that divided way, we have to question, should I be nice to this person or that creature? Should I just take care of myself? Or should I disregard myself for others? That whole problem dissolves when the sense of separation, when that appearance of division and disconnection is penetrated, is seen through and falls away. And we come to understand in those moments, in those deep places within, that that our freedom, our realization, the discovery of that which we seek in our practice, in our life, is not something we can do by ourselves or for ourselves. And nor yet is it something anyone else can do for us. No other thing or person can make it happen for us. And it seems like a seems like it's a rather despairing paradox, perhaps. Because if we can't do it by ourselves, we can't do it for ourselves, and yet no one else can do it for us, how is it possible? How can it be that this discovery, this freedom, this realization is actually possible? And yet there's no paradox at all. Because our freedom, our liberation, in deep connection, it's realized that this comes not through ourself, not through another, but through the dissolution of the division between the two. And that in that dissolution, in that ending of the division, in the seeing through that transparent appearance of separateness, there's a natural wisdom and compassion and a rather effortless freedom which is revealed, which we find to be unshakable and yet rather ordinary and everyday. And that this is the possibility and the potential of our practice, of our very existence, and of each moment when we allow ourselves to meet it fully and openly and with no sense, no belief in the appearances of separateness and division. When we truly understand that we are so much a part of it all and have never been, could never be other than all of it and yet none of it. There we discover the priceless jewel of the Dharma and our own well-being. So could we sit quietly together, please? May all beings see into life. May all beings know deep connectedness. May all beings realize the precious jewel of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.